ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans. Welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. And if you listened to the last few podcasts, you'll remember that we were discussing the 1920 uh, roster of the Cleveland Indians and some of those guys we were pretty vague on. I believe uh, I mentioned Smokey Joe in there and uh, Ray Chapman a little bit, but we're going to spend this week and next week looking at those two gentlemen. Now, Ray Chapman makes a lot of sense. He um, was a member of the Cleveland Indians his entire career and obviously is well-remembered for the tragedy that happened at the Polo Grounds. But with Smokey Joe, uh, it's a little bit of a different story. Smokey Joe actually made his name with the Boston Red Sox, and that's actually where uh, many baseball fans, if you know the name Smokey Joe Wood, would remember uh, where he was from. So you might be asking yourself, well, why are you doing or devoting an entire podcast to Smokey Joe? And the uh, long and short answer is because there is an excellent biography written on Smokey Joe, and I happen to have a, a chance to speak with the author and uh, I think when you have uh, a chance to speak with someone that has done the research and, and put together an award-winning book, well, you might as well take the time to do that, and hopefully we can uh, learn a few things about the, the life and times of Smokey Joe, mostly kind of leading up to his his time with the Indians and what went on when he uh, joined the club and how he kind of helped do his part for the uh, franchise. Throughout this podcast, then, we're going to um, insert a lot of my conversation with Dr. Gerald Wood. Now, there is no relation to Smokey Joe, um, which is kind of what I had thought uh, at the beginning, but we've talked a few times, and that was not the case. But nevertheless, his book, uh, Smokey Joe Wood, The Biography of a Baseball Legend, is uh, a 
an award-winning uh, uh, Sabre book. It won the 2014 Seymour Medal and in 2014 was a Larry Ritter Award finalist. So if you're into baseball biographies, I really enjoyed this one. And one of those uh, not quite Tris Speaker level names, but a, a name of that era that if you were a fan of it, you would know who Smokey Joe Wood was. One of the quirks, I guess, to Smokey Joe's early life is his name was actually not Joe. He was born Howard Ellsworth Wood. And as the story goes, um, which uh, Gerald's actually researched very well, that Joe or Howard was with his parents along with his brother at a World's Fair. And there were two clowns named Petey and Joe. And the boys were, were acting like clowns and being, you know, mischievous boys of of a young age that the mom just decided she was going to start calling them those names. And Joe, you know, it stuck and he became Joe Wood. His name wasn't, wasn't Joe to begin with. And it was kind of a, the first of, of two nicknames, I suppose. An important aspect of Smokey Joe's early life is that his father is absent quite a bit, trying to make money across the United States. And it's one of the things that uh, Gerald points out in his biography. And so Joe moved around. He was actually born in Kansas City, uh, and um, the family had really been in Nest City before then. Uh, and when they left Kansas City, they went to back to Nest City for a while, where, his, where John's uh, wife was from. Then they went on out to Colorado. So uh, he was always interested in um, trying to make it rich, and his father went both to Alaska and to the California area trying to uh, pan for gold. And he was gone. Uh, I think that was important to Joe's psyche. His father was gone uh, to the California area on a second trip when Joe was young. And so Joe and his brother uh, were sort of stranded in this little city of Nest City. And um, they had to, they didn't have much money. So they had to really learn how to scrape for things, how to sell things, how to uh, you know find some ways to make money. And it was during this time that uh, young Smokey Joe started getting into baseball and developing into a pretty decent ball player. And it was when the family moved back to Nest City when uh, one of the more interesting aspects of Joe's career takes place. The family moved back to Nest City. And just as soon as they moved back that spring, uh, that's where the Bloomingdale's started. They um, came through. They called themselves the National Bloomingdale's, but actually... They were uh, run by a guy named Logan Galbraith, and they were actually out of Kansas City. And they came out and played, a, you know, an exhibition game. They would have these sort of silly games like, um, you know, for fun, uh, sort of like um, sometimes it would involve Indians, sometimes, uh, you know, like House of David. And one of the novelties was uh, supposedly an all-girls team called the Bloom National Bloomer Girls. And this is where Joe actually joined the the Bloomer Girls, and it wasn't uncommon to have um, male players, again loosely dressed as as females, play in the game. And Smokey Joe actually spends the last couple of weeks playing with the Bloomer Girls, making uh, some money here and there. And it's one of those things that comes up in later interviews, whether it's uh, the glory of their times or in the oral history that's on the Cleveland Public Library's website. But uh, Gerald actually does a really good job kind of clarifying Joe's role on the team and what was going on. 
he mostly didn't pitch. He mostly played in the infield, but he also clarified a few things about the Bloomer girls, that mostly the pitchers and the catchers were actually guys. Most people knew that there were some ringers who were some guys. And also he said there were some really good uh, women. There was a, a woman named Egan, uh, a young woman named Egan, who was really quite good, who actually broke up a no-hitter uh, against them when he was with the, the Bloomer girls. So he just played for three weeks. Now this might just sound like random trivia. Okay, Smokey Joe would play for this Bloomer Girls team, and that's the end of the story. But uh, Gerald actually makes the the point that this was kind of the first step in uh, this long chain of events that led to Joe becoming a, a star pitcher for Boston. Anyway, the important thing for development of Joe was a couple of things. One is that technically since he had taken money, he had played professional ball. And he wasn't really eligible, supposedly, to play in college, uh, even though his mother wanted him to go to college. Well, two things happened and related that. His older brother was already in college, and a guy there was back playing in college, even though he probably shouldn't have been, according to the rules, but it was very common to do that, to go back to college. And he made some connections for Joe. And so Joe moved from there to Hutchinson, Kansas, where he played for one year, he was really signed to be an infielder. But while he was playing for Hutchinson, then he started to pitch for the first time. And the next year he was up at Kansas City. So um, by the time he was 18 years old, he was already in what we would now call double A, but it was the next jump was up to the Red Sox. And that's how he got there. For the sake of brevity, we're going to keep this train rolling. Again, if you, if you want to get more into the details of Smokey Joe's life and career, I, I urge you to read uh, Dr. Wood's book. It's it's going to give you a lot more detail than this, but I'm trying to keep these podcasts to a, a little bit shorter uh, because my conversation with Dr. Wood, I think, went an hour and a half. So uh, trying to be selective in, in what we use here. But um, it was around 1908, actually it was 1908 and 1909, that uh, Smokey Joe gets called up into Boston and there he meets Tris Speaker, and they become roommates um, and eventually become very good friends. So you see down the line, um, like with Larry Gardner, these guys that Speaker eventually brings to Cleveland as part of that club. But it's in Boston where Smokey Joe really lights the, the world on fire with his pitching. And as I mentioned earlier, he wasn't born Joe and uh, clearly he wasn't born Smokey Joe. So where that nickname, you know, Smokey came from, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why I like doing these uh, conversations with um, authors that are, are more versed in certain subjects. And here we have someone that did the nitty gritty research to pinpoint when exactly Smokey Joe became Smokey Joe. And here we're going to have uh, Gerald tell that story of how he discovered that and the exact timing of Smokey Joe's nickname because if you go on Baseball Reference, there's very few guys where if you type in their name, the nickname's actually in there too. I mean, Shoeless Joe has his as part of his real name and then Smokey Joe. So clearly it's such a um, concrete aspect to his identity. And here we have the story. Yeah, that was one of the harder things for me to research uh, because we didn't know exactly when that was. But, you know, there was a, a very famous game that he played against Walter Johnson in early September of 1912. Uh, and, and it was played up big because um, 
earlier in the year, Walter Johnson had won 16 games in a row and Wood was up to 13 games. And so they arranged that the two would play against each other. And when I was doing the research for that, it seemed quite clear that right at that time was the time when uh, a reporter named Shannon actually, uh, the story was true. We just didn't know when it was. And the story was that Wood was warming up, you know, before a game. And he said, boy, that kid really throws hard. He really throws smoke. And then he put that into the paper. And the first time I could see that that had happened was right, right just before that game. So I think it was the weekend before the previous start that Joe had, somewhere right in there in September. It was really confusing to a lot of people. Um, you know, nobody had ever tied it down, and even the Wood family thought that it probably was when he was a rookie and that it was in spring training. But actually, it was in it was in Boston. It was uh, either the last week or the of August or the first week of September in 1912. Smokey Joe also punched his name into the record books in that 1912 season and really made a name for himself in Boston when he tied Walter Johnson's American League record for consecutive uh, decisions with a win. Sure, that was um, in that game that I referred to, the game against Walter Johnson. Um, Johnson, in a way, sort of outpitched him, but uh, Wood got out of trouble all the way through and pitched a shutout. And um, the the Red Sox luckily got back-to-back doubles and one inning and won the and late in the game and won the game one to nothing. So the Wood had, it, I think, his 13th win. And he went on to win to tie to get 16 in a row. And that's still, I believe, an American League record for wins consecutive in a single season. It's now about like a curse. It's like six pitchers who have done that now, but they can't get to 17. And as I mentioned before, for the sake of brevity, we're going to kind of gloss over some more of Joe's career. But there is a uh, an aspect that we remiss to forget, and that is the fact that Smokey Joe helped the Red Sox win that 1912 World Series with uh, three wins in there. So again, we're going to kind of slide past that and get on to the, the next subject because, again, we could continue to talk and make this a multi-part uh, podcast, but... We are we aren't going to do that this time. So what ends up happening to to Smokey Joe is just a, a series of injuries that really kind of devastate his his arm and his ability to be Smokey Joe. In the next clip, uh, in my conversations with Gerald, we discuss Smokey Joe's arm, and in the course of writing his book, he just comes in this insight because he's able to actually speak with someone that uh, knew Joe and was a a doctor that actually worked with Joe later in his life. So uh, it's a little bit of a longer clip, but it's it's extremely fascinating and uh, integral to what happened to Smokey Joe. Yeah, yeah, that was, it really did happen over a two or three year period. I mean, he, um, he, he hurt himself in two or three different ways. One is he was in as a pinch runner in a game early in 1913, and he uh, he sort of hurt his thumb a little bit. And then when he came back to pitch, he thought things were okay. But the famous thing that happened was they were playing a game against Detroit, and the guy had a swinging bunt down the third baseline, 
we'd got the ball and went to turn to throw to third to get the guy and he fell on that thumb and they didn't know that it was broken. Um, and he didn't play too much that year, but they may have brought him back a little bit, a little bit early. And um, what ended up happening, and we now understand this better, uh, is because of his finger being broken and because of his changing his delivery, he eventually started to tear his rotator cuff. Uh, the reason I know that is, and it's an interesting story in itself, um, I just happened to be in New Haven because uh, my son-in-law was was doing his residency there in anesthesiology. And I knew the name of the guy who had um, taken care of Joe Wood just before he died. And his name was Dr. Leo Cooney. And I looked up Yale just thinking, what you know, what's going to be? Well, he was the head of gerontology. So I called him up and I go over there, you know, and uh, I said, would you talk a little bit about Joe Wood. He says, sure. He says, I said, are you a Red Sox fan? He says, hell yes, I'm a Red Sox fan. He says, I'm a better fan than many of these people from Massachusetts. He was from some other state and he was bragging about him. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything that's, that's unethical. So you don't have to answer this question, but you were taking care of Joe Wood, um, you know, in the year or so before he died. I mean, did you look, what was it? And Leo Cooney said, it was a torn rotator cuff. And with a torn rotator cuff going into 1915, Smokey Joe still had, uh, you know, one of the better seasons of his career with a, an ERA at a 1.49. So yeah, I can't imagine the pain of a, a torn rotator cuff, but I, I can't imagine it was easy for him to pitch, and, and it wasn't. And uh, Gerald describes the pain and, and agony that Smokey Joe would be in. And so Wood didn't start the season. About two months into the season, he finally started to pitch. And throughout the rest of the 1915 season, Wood could only pitch every two or sometimes even three weeks because every time he would throw, his arm would hurt so bad that he couldn't raise it above his belt. He said he even had to, you know, use his left hand to to move his right arm around because it hurt so bad. After that 1915 season, a lot like Speaker, you have the, the Federal League collapsing, so players' bargaining power, you know, there's no other league to jump to, so owners can uh, kind of give low ball offers. And uh, Boston being aware that Smokey Joe's arm just wasn't what it used to be, um, just didn't offer him a contract that was, you know, going to meet what he had wanted. So Smokey Joe just decided he was going to try to rehab in 1916 and uh, see what happened from there. It's interesting to hear, too, how Joe went about 1916 and how he was going to get himself back into a, a baseball shape or get his arm back to where it used to be and hear from my conversation with uh, Dr. Wood. So he basically took a year off and tried to rehab. Uh, some of the things he did were smart, like he put a trapeze in his house and um, did a lot of exercising. But one of the things he was told to try was to get a chiropractor that a couple of other guys had used. So he got this chiropractor named Crucius in New York. 
and he used to spend his weekdays in New York trying to rehab. Well, this guy's prescription for Joe Wood was, he said, I don't know exactly what's wrong with your arm, but what I want you to do is go over to Columbia University, uh, where a friend of uh, Wood's was, and throw as hard as you can. So you can't throw until it's so painful you can't throw and then come and see me and I'll try to figure out what it was. Well, of course, it didn't work very well. That didn't help his arm. And in the early part of 1917, you start to see Smokey Joe's name pop up and being attached to Cleveland in the, the Cleveland newspapers. Um, one of the uh, articles mentioned whether Joe Wood becomes a member of the Indians depends largely upon Smokey Joe himself. And uh, uh, President Frazee of the Red Sox had given Cleveland the right to talk terms with him. Again, he'd been out of baseball for a year so. It was kind of up in the air um, what was going to go on with, with Joe. In the February 24th plane dealer, the president of the Red Sox is on record saying, I named a price, and I guess it must have staggered him, referring to McRoy. Um, it was more than the Cleveland club seemed willing to pay, and I believe McRoy did not think I would want so much. Cleveland must desire his services very much, and if it wants him, it must meet my price. And the matter stands, if anything is done, it'll be on a cash basis. No player will be involved. Cleveland refuses to trade Steve O'Neill, the only Indian I need. That demonstrates two things. One, uh, Steve O'Neill was a great catcher, and his name kind of popped up every once in a while in terms of teams wanting him. So, again, thanks to Connie Mack for, for Steve. And two, the Red Sox kind of knew they had, you know, the mystery of uh, of Smokey Joe. He hadn't pitched in a year, but he had such a great um, resume that, you know, they might have known how serious it was, but you're going to try to get as much out of this uh, damaged asset as you can. However, by the next day, the plane dealer had mentioned that Smokey Joe was purchased by the Cleveland Club for $15,000. Uh, it went on to show that, Jim Dunn was willing to take the gamble to uh, to pick up a big-name guy and reunite Triss with one of his friends as well. After he had signed his contract, Smokey Joe said, several teams were willing to take me, but I did not hesitate in expressing my preference for the Indians. I have two reasons. I wanted to be with a club that appeared to have a chance to win the pennant, and I wanted to be with Spoke again. I do not want the public to think I am making any effort to obtain money under false pretenses. If I had not confidently believed I would be able to pitch winning ball this year, I would have not allowed Cleveland to have paid 15000 for my release. I am dealing squarely with President Dunn. So again, Smokey Joe believes he's going to be back. He's going to be his old self. And you start to see that too as spring training begins and uh, Joe starts you know, talking and, and pitching and, and getting out there. The way the plain dealer covers him too, it, it kind of goes into what he was doing on a little bit of a daily basis on March 10th. It said, Joe Wood continued to work out at short field in the batting practice. He will keep up until he is sure the rest of his body is ready to let cut loose with his arm. The only throwing he does is to loosen up when he arrives at the park, then shifting to a half an hour with the fungo stick before going to short. As Gerald mentioned too, after he had torn his rotator cuff and was trying to pitch, he couldn't get his arm above his head and on March 15th, he, he told the paper, The last time I worked out with the Red Sox at Hot Springs, I was unable to lift my arm above my head after I had been working out two weeks. That's not a bit of pain when I do so now. 
So again, he, he mentioned later on a couple of weeks, I am now ready to declare that I will be just as good as I was three years ago. I am not worrying anymore. So the confidence is there, and he might feel okay having not pitched in forever. However, um, it just, you know, if your rotator cuff is torn, no amount of positive thinking is going to, uh, to reattach that and fix it. Jim Dunn's big gamble really kind of shows its head about the 37th game of the season on May 26th when the newspaper calls it Smokey Joe Wood Day at League Park. It's his first start. You you paid all this money for this big-name pitcher, and now it's time to kind of put the money where the mouth is. And people were confident. Tris Speaker said Joe is ready. If he were not, we would not be starting him tomorrow. He, he said we have every confidence in him. And if he delivers as we expect, well, just look out for us. So the confidence is there. Uh, 15,000 fans roll in the league park uh, to watch Smokey Joe hopefully look like Smokey Joe. However, things didn't necessarily go according to plan. It seemed to be a mix of just bad placement of uh, some hits and some some errors, but Joe gave up 11 hits and a 4-3 to loss to the Yankees. The paper mentioned the three of those hits were infield taps, which came close to being scored as errors. Another was a hit because it skimmed along the third baseline when a couple of inches would have sent it into foul territory. Um, it said the maker of that hit scored New York's fourth run. However, if you were at that game, you were probably a little nervous, or if you were reading about the next day, uh, of what was in store for Smokey Joe. The paper mentioned that Wood did not display the famous speed that earned him the nickname Smokey Joe, and he resorted seldom to the fastball he has shown when in training in New Orleans. But he did show a, a new curveball, which is something he did not exhibit to any extent on the training trips. Uh, so again, that uh, was kind of uh, nerve-wracking and the club was headed to Boston on a road trip, and there was some talk of him going into Boston to pitch. However, in mid-June, the news reported that Smokey Joe's arm won't be ready for weeks. Uh, Dr. Robert Drury of Columbus, who treated Joe Wood at New Orleans in March, gave Smokey Joe's arm an examination today and told him probably it would be several weeks before he could pitch again. He said, you made a mistake in trying to go an entire game, Joe. Now you must start in to get your arm in shape gradually as you did at New Orleans. You have weakened it by overwork. Now you must strengthen it again. Joe returns in August, but he makes about four appearances kind of in relief duty. doesn't really have much stuff. I think he has a strikeout in each uh, appearance. And by the end of September, the paper even says that uh, Joe Wood, who looks as though he were through as a big leaguer, his effort to get by in two innings he pitched at St. Louis on the last trip was sad. He might come through and pitch a few more effective innings now and then, but it does not look as if any dependence can be placed on him. And so Joe's really at a crossroads. Uh, you know, his career could be over, especially as a pitcher, which in reality it is. I, he goes on to make a, a spot appearance, I think, in 1919 and 1920 as a pitcher, but he goes on to uh, reestablish himself as a position player. And Gerald does a, a great job kind of summarizing his 1918 season and that transformation and, and how that actually happened. The next year was when things really got interesting in 1918. 
Um, he still hoped to be a pitcher. Uh, they were bringing him along really slowly, basically having him help out the, the young guys. But Wood was always real, real kinetic, really active. Uh, when he wasn't pitching in spring training, he would be playing shortstop. He'd be playing third. He'd be shagging balls. He was doing all these things. So he also was um, playing some in the field. And in the background, there'd been, you know, there are always rumors that don't come true, but there was a rumor that maybe they were going to try Wood at first base or maybe even put him in the outfield um, if he couldn't pitch. Um, and Joe liked to tell this romantic story that there's a guy, I think his name was Bill uh, Black, Blackwood, maybe, who was like one of the secretaries there at the Indians. And uh, there was a guy uh, who wasn't doing very well. Uh, I think his name was Big Ed Miller. He dropped the ball. In fact, he missed the ball so bad it hit him in the chest. And Joe liked to say that the secretary turned to the team and said, put Woody out there. He can catch that damn ball. And so there's a question of whether it was instantaneous. There's a question. There are two other possibilities. And one is, makes pretty clear, and that is by then, 1918, a lot of guys were in the service, so they, the quality of play was gone down. And it was even later the theory that maybe a, a flu had taken out some of the players. You know, it was that was when the terrible flu epidemic was, you know, worse than even what we got now. And there was some question of some guys getting sick. But all these things sort of conspired for Wood to get a chance. It took a couple of weeks at the beginning of the season with some guys getting hurt and stuff. But by the second week of the season, they started using Wood particularly in left field. And he was up and down as a hitter. He was up and down even as a fielder. But, of course, he was tremendously athletic. And so uh, in 1918, they started using him sometimes in left field, sometimes at first base, sometimes even at second base when Wamgens got uh, drafted into the service, uh, Wood replaced him at second base. So he became a kind of utility player. With Smokey Joe, you also see it when uh, it was in the paper when they, the Indians were kicking the tires on him and, and when they do pick him up, it mentioned how good of a hitter he was and you see that in his career numbers with the Indians. So you have this pitcher that converts into a, an outfielder utility guy. And by the end of his, his career, his numbers in Cleveland, he had a 297 batting average. He had 18 home runs and 275 RBI. So he was really able to, uh, to flip the script, so to speak, and become a, a valuable asset on the offense. And you might wonder how a guy with a torn rotator cuff can play the outfield. Uh, it necessitates throwing the ball into the infield at a great distance, especially in league park. But again, here, Gerald has uh, his, his story on that. Um, also, the other thing was his arm. He said he didn't ever understand it, but when he played the outfield, his arm didn't hurt when he threw. So you could imagine you have this outfielder who's got great athletic ability, but then he's also got a wonderful arm that he can still use from the outfield. When Tris Speaker takes over as manager, Smokey Joe becomes one of those guys he throws in the platoons. We mentioned that in a previous episode and how the, the newspapers would kind of make fun of Tris having a platoon system where they would need, you know, platooners in the in the ticket office. But uh, Smokey Joe becomes a valuable part of the Indians organization during those those years. 
that's more or less kind of the nuts and bolts of a Smokey Joe. He's a really interesting story of a, a player from that era, obviously joining, uh, getting his, his first big start in baseball with the Bloomer Girls and then going up through Boston on this uh, meteoric rise with this blazing fastball that rivaled that of Walter Johnson only to have his you know, rotator cuff torn, uh, but able to, you know, uh, make that gamble that Jim Dunn took pay off and become this uh, this platoon piece in the Indians outfield. And just, uh, again, one of those pieces in the machine that was the 1920 Indians. And as we go on through the uh, the future episodes where we look at the 1920 season in the World Series, you'll, you'll hear Smokey Joe's name more. I would like to thank Dr. Gerald Wood for joining me uh, we, you know, we had this conversation a few weeks ago and we actually spoke, I think, like I said, for an hour and a half. And it's really tough to, you know, pare down and, and figure out what I want to use and and what I can cut out of there. Because, again, if you pick up his book, you'll realize how detailed it is. And, you know, the story of Smokey Joe Wood is hard to condense into a half hour. But and that's where I'm trying to keep these at just to. You know, we're putting a lot of other great podcasts out there. I want to toot the horn of uh, of what Rosie and Hammy are doing right now. Our 22-game win streak podcast is coming out. So uh, check that out as well as what Rosie does with the, uh, the Rosie Report. So some more great content out there from us. And uh, this is hopefully, uh, you know, helping cover our, our history as well as the current stuff that, that Hammy and Rosie are doing. Thank you for joining us on Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I hope you will join us next week when our guest is Mike Soule, author of The Pitch That Killed. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.